My, my title and my role as a director of City Mission has given me the opportunity to, to, to be in these conversations thinking about what is the city mission of this church? Uh, and, and this is something that we, for the last six months or so, had been working on. You know, it's starting as a piece of paper, just articulating the vision, but we're already seeing the, the fruitful ministry of this church to the city. And by city, kind of defining that loosely as the East Bay or the Bay Area, just the cities that we dwell in. And today um, is the sixth and final week of our series that was birthed out of the city mission, um, where we've been looking at six issues that God cares deeply for. Um, we looked at God's heart for the poor, God's heart for justice, God's heart for our work, uh, for the nations, for our health. And this week we're going to look at God's heart for creation. And really to sum up what this series has been, you could say it like this, that we believe that the gospel, which means the good news, truly is good news to this world. It truly is good news to the communities that we dwell in and the, the spheres we inhabit. Um, it's good news to us as individuals whom Jesus died for us, but also to the world, that we believe that God is bringing about the redemption of all things. And as a church, we want to be a part of that. So this week, we're going to look at God's heart for creation. And, and creation as, as a subcategory, um, maybe say like the natural world, the environment, sorry, as a subcategory of creation. So this is not a foreign subject in the Bay Area. It's something that, that comes up frequently in conversations. Um, you know, whether you've been here for a week or, or, or a few months. So if you're a Cal student, maybe new to the area, or if you've grown up in the Bay Area, you know that the environment is something we like to talk a lot about here, uh, especially in the East Bay. And sometimes it's literally in your face. You know, maybe you've walked down Shattuck Avenue and you've had uh, the people come up to you and say, can you spare, you know, a few minutes to, to save the world? And I like, well, if it was that easy. But, um, and, but often, you know, they're standing right in front of cheeseboard pizza. So it's kind of like, look. I would love to talk to you, but I'm really trying to get to the pizza place that's right behind you. So could we maybe like have this conversation a little bit later? And so. Anyway, but, but this is why creation is such an important subject for us to tackle today, because you have heard the opinions of, of those people with the clipboards on Shattuck Avenue. Uh, you've heard the opinions from the signs that hang over the, the overpasses up and down the 80. You've heard the opinions of radio and TV. And and being in the Berkeley area, you certainly know everybody's opinions based on their bumper stickers. And so today let's look at what does God have to say about creation? So pray with me as I jump into this. God, as we have been singing in all these songs that, that you are Lord over all of creation, not just us as human beings, but you are Lord over the created parts of this world, um, the earth and, and its fullness is yours. And so, help us to be a church that's equipped to engage with that world and engage in these conversations and these issues of the environment and, and the things that, that we face today in contemporary culture. Let us approach them in a unique and a salty and a light-filled way. I pray that our time this morning, that you would use it and your spirit would be moving in this community and you would let this be um, just the start of this conversation, um, maybe a clarification for some of us, but whatever it is, 
Help us to be more thoughtfully and, and Christ-centered in our engagement with the world on the subject of the environment. So we pray for all these things in your good name. Amen. So a little background on this subject here. Lynn White, uh, he was a professor of medieval history. Um, he taught at UCLA. He taught at Yale. He was even president at Mills College here in Oakland for a little while. And White's most influential work was a piece that he did in 1967. And, and this was an article looking at the historical roots of our ecological crisis. That was the title of the article. And Ian, this is at the peak of the environmentalist movement in the late 60s, early 70s. And <clears throat> excuse me, White, as a historian, he looked at the historical record and he discovered what he said was the cause of all of our ecological problems today. And do you have any idea what he concluded? What the cause was of all of our ecological problems? It was Christianity. That was, that was his conclusion. Now, this isn't just an article that popped up once in the 60s. It was a really influential article. I have a friend who uh, was working on his master's down at UCLA, and he took an environmental theory class, and they read this article, and he said it, it continues to be important in the conversation today. And Lynn White's argument was essentially this, that, that before uh, the Christian worldview really like, took hold across the world, um, kind of the ancient traditions, the natural world was seen to be alive, and that the non-human parts of creation, they had spirits, and whenever you know, somebody was to chop down a tree, or to go fishing, or, or to kill an animal, whatever it was, they had to placate that spirit first. And White concluded that in the Christian worldview, human beings are made in the image of God. And that, that created a dichotomy between human beings and the rest of the created world. And that, he argued, gave humans the freedom to destroy creation and do whatever they wanted to it. And here's a quote from his conclusion. He said, Christianity made it possible to exploit nature in a mood of indifference. So White looked at Christianity, he looked at the evidence before him, and he said that Christianity was the source of all environmental problems. Now, is he correct? Is he correct in saying that inherent to Christianity is a worldview that is destructive to the world around us? Another way to ask that, is that God's heart for creation? And we have to say, clearly not. Because we're going to look at a handful of places in the Bible that are going to paint a portrait for us of what is God's heart for creation. And we will see a God who has a deep love for his created world. And that we as his people are called to live in a way that reflects God's love for the world. So if you need a Bible, uh, if you raise your hand, uh, John will bring you a Bible. There's going to be a couple of texts that we look through. So have your Bible in front of you or your Bible app, whatever it is on your phone, ready. We're going to start in Psalm 104, but from there we're going to jump to a couple different places. So, And just as a disclaimer, before we get into Psalm 104, I'm going to read verses 10 through 19. Um, this is really going to be a snapshot. I'm, like I said, I want to paint a picture of what is God's heart for creation. This isn't going to be exhaustive of all the texts, but I'm just, just hear this and Maybe if you don't have a Bible or if you want to, if you're a visual person, close your eyes and there's a beautiful text and, and let this paint a picture for you. 
Psalm 104, I'm going to start in verse 10 and go through 19. God, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. This is God's word. And, and this is a, a picture uh, of what God's heart for creation is. is and, it, and does it sound like God's heart for creation is, yeah, I'm kind of interested I think about it once in a while, and like, I'm a little involved, a little interested, but no, absolutely not. I mean, we see here, God is intimately involved in his creation, as it says in verse 14, that God is the one who is causing the grass to grow for the livestock. You know, it says in verse 16, did you catch that, that, that the trees are his trees, in verse 26, I didn't read this part, but it says, The sea is made for all the ships to sail in and the Leviathan to play in. Makes me kind of scared to go in the water ever again. But, but God cares enough about, about the creatures that he's excited that they have a sea to play in. In verse 31, and this is really significant here because it says, May the Lord rejoice in his works. God looks at his creation and he rejoices in it. And doesn't that sound familiar? If you flip with me to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. In verse 4, we find God describing his creation of the world, and he just finished making uh, light, separating light from dark, and he looks at it and he says, this is, what was it? Good. In verse 10, God looked at the dry earth and the seas, and he saw that it was good. Verse 12, God looked at the vegetation and the fruits and flowers, and he saw that it was Okay, it's easy, right? The birds were, the beasts of the field were. God looked at the created world, and he said, this is good. Now, maybe you notice I didn't get to the people yet in the creation narrative. Um, the Bible is very clear that human beings are the pinnacle of creation, that we are the only part of the created world that is made in God's image. But the Bible is also clear that creation is good before men and women came along. It's not just good because you can make houses with it, or you can eat it, or you can plant it. It's not just good because it makes in and out possible. Creation is inherently good. And so if God has a deep love for his creation, if God sees his creation as good, how do we respond as God's people? And I'm going to single out a few principles here this morning. It's going to shape our, uh, just the time that we uh, look at the rest of this text and the various uh, other texts here. 
There's three categories we're going to look at. Um, stewardship, worship, and the gospel. Um, or we can put it this way. We have a slide here that, that we are called to steward creation, worship the creator, and participate in creation's redemption. So that's steward creation, worship the creator, and participate in its redemption. Okay, the first point on steward creation. This has to be a brief point because we can talk a lot of weeks about what does stewardship look like. And it's a worthy subject for us, but today we're going to look at stewardship specifically through the lens of Genesis and the task that God gave us when he created us. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish and the birds and every living thing on earth. Be fruitful and multiply. And then it says that later that the plants were given for food. Chapter 2, verse 15, it says, uh, a little more instruction, God told uh, man and woman to keep and to work and to keep the garden. And the picture God gives us for our role in the world is, is not a picture that says creation is merely there to be consumed and destroyed, but neither is it a picture that says human beings are a problem, they're a cancer on creation, and that you shouldn't touch or use anything. You know, God gives uh, human beings the task to, to fill the earth. It says to fill the earth, be fruitful, and multiply that we're supposed to have create offspring as well as to make good stuff in the world. We looked at this a couple months back, right, talking about creation from Isaiah 60 and the goodness of the things which we can create. And God made people to rule over, to creation, over the creation, to use it, to incorporate it in their lives, to build houses, to make beautiful things. But you can make the argument... I suppose that, well, if God gave us the creation to rule over, to have dominion over it, I mean, we can use it however we want, right? But look at it like this. Imagine you have a father or a grandfather, somebody who has spent his whole life building this wonderful furniture company. And in this company, it's, uh, it has steady growth, you know, profit year after year, making finely crafted furniture with good materials. There's a healthy work culture there where employees value the work that they do and they love being a part of this company. And at the end of your father's life, he passes on his company to you and he says that here is this wonderful business which I have built. I want you to run it. Now you can turn around and start undoing all of the wonderful things that your father established, right? I mean, you could start firing good employees and, and maybe trying to, to cut back on costs to maximize profits. Maybe you can use cheaper materials and, and, and the, the furniture starts getting shoddy and, and starts falling apart quickly. And, and maybe you just run the company into the ground. All because, well, it's mine. I can do whatever I want with it, right? Like, no, that's ridiculous, right? That, that would show an utter disrespect and a lack of love for your father and this wonderful thing he created. And so stewardship should always direct us to think of the one who created and the one who gave us that authority in the first place. So let's ask the question, does our stewardship reflect God's heart for creation? And that leads us to our second point, to worship the creator. 
As I said before, the subject of creation care is very prevalent here in the Bay Area. And, and the more people you meet, you will find very different views on nature. Uh, a common one is the, the pantheistic view, which says that God is in everything and that everything is divine, right? That, and that person who holds that view, when they're in nature, they see nature itself as worthy of worship, that they can praise the creation itself, recognizing the divine in it. For others, it's an appreciation of the natural world in which human beings are uh, simply a more evolved creature, in which there is, uh, it's by chance, which there is creation. And, and while some people would say, well, it's completely random, others would say that, well, there, there's beauty in it because of natural selection, and there's something valuable, valuable about beauty. And I know there's a lot of nuances in that view, but but the thing which they have in common is that surely this does not come from a higher power or, or something specifically designing this world. And Christianity is unique from that, obviously, because we recognize there is a distinct and powerful creator God. And for a Christian, the natural world, the created world, is an invitation to worship. And as stewards of that world... As Genesis says that we are called to live as stewards of this world, we have an obligation to facilitate worship. What do I mean by that? I want to suggest that caring for creation is a big part of facilitating that worship. And I say this for two reasons. First is that creation helps us worship God. Romans chapter 1 says that that the natural created world tells of an invisible eternal God. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Then we look at that picture-perfect sunset and the, the snow-capped mountains and, and the beautiful field full of flowers. We look at the ocean waves crashing against the beautiful California coast. We should look at that and immediately think of the one who created that all. Immediately think of a good, powerful creator God who made that. And I doubt that's a, a new concept for, for many of you, but I believe there are some application points for us to consider here. And the first is that, that we need to remove barriers to worshiping God in nature. I went backpacking with Andrew Hoffman and, and Brent Complin and a handful of people a few years ago now, and it was the most worshipful weekend I had ever had. I mean, it was my first time backpacking, my first time like carrying in supplies and sleeping out in the middle of nowhere. And everywhere you looked, you saw beautiful, untouched parts of creation. You know, the, the clear skies, you know, the beautiful lakes, the streams running through the mountains, the beautiful forests. I was like prancing through a land in Snow White or something. And, and every moment was like, Oh, look at the bird. Like, oh, God, you're so good. Oh, the stream and the fish. Oh, God, praise be to you. And like crying. This is like so beautiful. Uh, making everybody carry my backpack because I'm like dancing off in the fields. And, and then we slept on the shores of this lake. And it was, I've never seen water this calm in my life. And you just like look across it and it's like glass. And, and, and in the mornings, you know, around the fire, we would open the Psalms and we would have Bible studies and we would just be ascribing glory, ascribing worth to God. And worship was so easy out there. It was just easy. 
And then I imagine what would that be like if I, you know, wake up and I look out on the lake and, and I see, like, there's a big oil spill in one spot. And then there's, like, dead fish floating over there. And there's, like, a boot floating and a tire floating. I don't know how a tire would get out there in the middle of nowhere. But, and then you may be on the trail on the way up. You know, instead of these majestic forests, there were just these tree stumps everywhere. The spark to worship would have been gone. These stimuli all around that caused me to look up to the heavens, be like, God, you are good. Those would be gone. And the Bible says that the heavens, the stars, declare his glory. But, but what if you can't see the stars because of pollution? We lose that spark to worship. We lose that chance. And as stewards of this world, we have been given the responsibility to keep the world in such a state that helps us worship God as the creator of it all. And there's also an interesting link to justice here, which, you know, the environment and creation care and justice may seem like completely different subjects, but, but do you know there are countless kids here in the Bay Area who have never seen the ocean? let alone snow. They've never experienced the, the peace and tranquility of being out in the middle of a meadow and looking up and seeing a sky full of stars without light pollution, without noise. And many of them don't have that opportunity because they don't have the economic resources to go to those places. Or for many of them, it's their single-parent household that their parent can't take time off on a weekend to drive them out to Stinson Beach to go hang out. And I believe as the church, we need to look for opportunities where we can break down these barriers and to provide opportunities for people to experience God through his creation. And to point out a couple examples, one of them, Lance Kubiak, some of you may know him, he's a part of this church, and, and he's in the process of starting up a ministry of the church where the vision is simply to get people from this community out into the wilderness and to admire creation and to ascribe glory to God and to open scriptures together and, and to talk about the goodness of creation and stewardship. And, and he joked about calling it count me out as in uh, outdoors. Get it? Another example is a, a ministry. I mean, he may not call it a ministry, but it, I believe truly this is the work of the kingdom. But John Iwawaki, uh, who's at the back table, and if you want to ask him about this, Feel free to, but John Iwawaki um, started the Escape Club a handful of years back, and he and Jason Lau, who's also part of the church council here, um, they run this organization where the vision is to take a lot of the kids from the West Contra Costa School District, which is you know, historically a very low-income school district, and, and many of the kids who I described before, they're a part of these schools here in Richmond, and they take these students to these beautiful places. They're exposing them to the goodness of God's creation in ways that they've never seen before. I mean, I was on one of these uh, trips where we went up to go sledding, and it was probably the worst, dirtiest, slushiest snow I've ever seen in my life. And I'm all smug. I'm like, this is gross. And these kids are coming out of the car. They're like, is that snow? Can I touch it? What does it feel like? I mean, it was like, it's wet. It's cold. I'm like, Wow. You've really never seen snow before. This isn't just an idea. That's real. John and Jason and many of you in the church who are helping out, you know, give rides to these kids, they bring kids to these places. They teach them about farming and stewardship. And it's 
wonderful work that they do. One year they had a t-shirt that had a picture of a couple kids walking through the forest and they're looking at each other and they say, man, it smells like Home Depot out here. <laughs> Which is genius and I love what they're doing because they're trying to turn that around, right? So when they go to Home Depot, oh, it smells like the redwoods that we were hanging out in you know, a few months back, right? So those are a couple pictures. But there's another bit of application here. Yeah, creation helps us worship God, but a little nuance, very similar, but we also need to allow creation itself to bring glory to God. I mean, did you know the Bible says that creation itself actually praises God? That Psalm 148, what we read, you know, call and response earlier this morning, says, praise him, sun and moon, praise him, all you shining stars, praise the Lord, you great sea creatures. There it is again. Kind of scary. Praise him, you sea creatures in the deep, the fire and the hail, snow and mist, mountains and cedars. First Chronicles 16 says, let the forest sing of joy before the Lord. The Bible paints a picture of creation that praises its creator. How is that? I mean, it's not making the conscious decision to sing a song or praise God, but, but creation itself praises God by being the creation, by doing what God created it to do. A tree praises God by waving its branches. Animals praise God by swimming and jumping and eating and flying and building nests and digging holes Except when it's digging up those tomato plants you just planted, that's sin. It needs to be subdued and ruled over, lovingly, of course. As stewards of this world, we must let creation be creation. And as I said earlier, that doesn't mean never touch creation, because that clearly happens throughout Scripture. The world is here for our use and our enjoyment. But if we destroy every single tree for lumber, then trees can't wave their branches. You know, we can have sustainable tree farms that are there for the purpose of lumber, and so people can build their homes while letting other forests worship God. We need to live in a way that that just allows creation to be creation, and when we use it, to use it well. A little tangent here, and I know that this is... uh, more of a sensitive subject or more of a controversial subject, and that is the issue of food and farming. Um, but I think it's, it's a worthy tangent for us this morning. A professor of mine, Richard Mao, tells a story in which he, he describes a chicken farmer, and, and he tells a story in a way that really illustrates that human beings rule over these animals, right? But we need to let animals live in a way where they get to be themselves, and they get to do what they were created to do. So my professor, Richard Mao, told the story of this chicken farmer, and he felt this call and purpose as a chicken farmer, much in the way that people describe their call to pastoral ministry. Supposedly, this guy had a call to chicken farming. I don't know, but uh, it, was, it was a clear conviction of God on his heart. And, and the farmer said this. He said, chickens are chickens and deserve to be treated like chickens. That was a really intellectual statement he made. 
He says, this means that we have to give chickens the space to strut his stuff in front of other chickens. As I was corrected in between the services, a chicken is a female and a, and a rooster is a male, and roosters are the ones that strut their stuff, so let's be clear. A, a rooster should be allowed to strut his stuff in front of other roosters. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4 says this, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out to the grain. Or, excuse me, treading out the grain. In ancient Israel, the ox used to pull behind it this stone which would um, run over the wheat as, that they had you know, laid flat, and it would separate the tip of the wheat from the stalk, and, and they would muzzle the ox as this was happening. Well, why was this? Well, the muzzle, like, or sorry, the, the ox likes wheat, and it would eat. It's like taking a kid to a candy store and saying, don't touch anything. It's going to happen. Kids like candy. The ox is walking down. It's eating the wheat, so they would put the muzzle on it. Reason was to cut their loss and to maximize their profits. Because maybe an ox would eat 2, 5, 10% of the wheat, depending on how hungry it was, and that's wheat that you could sell and make money off of. But God tells his people, don't do that. Don't muzzle the ox. The ox should be allowed to eat when it's walking among the grain. That's what it was made to do. Even if it cuts into your profits, don't do that. Because you're the people of God and you do things differently. So as the church, we need to look for opportunities to just let creation bring glory to God. And the same professor of mine in the same lecture said he would always play peekaboo with his grandson and he said that, you know, his grandson would sit there on his knee and, and he would, you know, cover his face and go, boo. And his grandson would just laugh and do it again, Grandpa. And he, boo. <laughs> do it again, Grandpa. Boo. Do it again, Grandpa. And he said, no matter how many times I did that, my grandson never got tired of playing peekaboo. Every time it brought him joy, every time it was surprising, he loved it. Do it again, Grandpa. Richard Mao says, you know what I think? That God is like that with his creation. That he looks at the eagle that is perched on top of the tree, and as it leaps forward and spreads its wings, and it, it coasts down majestically, and then it, it flaps its wings, and it flies off into the distance, God looks at that, and he says, do it again. Do it again. That God delights in his creation. So our last point this morning is that we need to participate in redemption. And this is a point that really could be made for any one of these last six weeks we're talking about the city mission of this church. Because as a church, we want to be committed to seeing God's will done here on earth, now in the Bay Area. That we want to see the kingdom of heaven break through. That we want to be a church that is a foretaste of the things which the Bible promises are coming. As a church, we want to be committed to the redemption and the restoration of all things because throughout Scripture, we see a God who is absolutely committed to his creation. When John describes his vision of the future, and when he sees the kingdom of heaven, Revelation 21, John describes heaven coming down to earth and the renewal of all things. 
John does not say when heaven comes, God's going to destroy everything he did, but, but God affirms the goodness of his creation when he says, Behold, I am making all things new. God does not sit around and say to the other members of the Trinity, Well, look, we tried, and we created this world, and, and we tried to make it good, and we, we tried to make it have beautiful material stuff, and, and good people, and good culture, but this sin thing happened, and it messed everything up, right? So let's just wipe the slate clean. Let's take the souls of all the people, and let's take them out of this place, and let's just burn up everything behind. That is not the message of the Bible. Because God does not give up on his creation, and in one monumental event in history, God loudly affirms the goodness of his creation, and that was on Easter morning. When Jesus Christ, who was sent to the earth, came and lived a perfect life, was crucified, was buried, and when he was raised from the dead, that was the ultimate affirmation of God's love and commitment to his people and his creation. Jesus' death and resurrection, that was the ultimate triumph over sin and death. But not only in the sin, in the sense that we as sinful people are alienated from God, but but sin in the way that, that as people were alienated from creation and that creation, all of creation suffers from sin that, that Romans 8.21 tells us that, that creation itself longs to be set free from its bondage to decay and death. But God is utterly committed to his creation. Because when Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb on Easter morning in his perfect material physical uh, resurrection body, Jesus shows that God did not give up. Sin and death were defeated. But we do look forward to a time when, when God will fully restore the broken world. I mean, John 3.16 says this. It says, For God so loved the, the cosmos... That's the word in the Greek there. For God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son. That we look forward to this time that, that when we ourselves, we have been freed from sin and death because of what Jesus did, but that's not the end of the story. Right? This isn't just a moment in our lives and we get a ticket to heaven and that's the end. Right? But this is the beginning. This is the invitation to participate in what God is doing here and now. And we can't make the world a perfect place in our own efforts. Because, especially in the Bay Area, people are really trying to, to care for the environment and to be about good works and social justice. And we can try and try and try, but we can't do this in our own efforts. But we do believe that God will bring perfection one day. And somehow, in his mysterious, loving ways, God calls his people to participate. Like God wants you to be a part of this redeeming now. So as Christians, we, we should care for the environment more, uh, better than anybody else. And I'm not saying that you can't be a good uh, person of creation, care, stewardship. You can't be a good environmentalist because there are a lot of people who take really good care of the environment who have no knowledge or no belief in who Jesus was. But I am saying that Christianity should give us a greater 
motivation because we believe that the world was made by God, that it's good, that it's going to last forever, and that God died for creation. And I read this quote already, you know, a month or so back, but I think it's worth repeating here. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he's talking how the Christian should respond when confronted with um, cancer or a slum. Maybe in this case we would add, you know, ecological issues. And Lewis says this, he says, For Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks that God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes, and all the animals, and all the vegetables, are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But God also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made, and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. The moment when you place your faith in Jesus as your Savior, you will find that he is now your Lord too. You are recognizing that you have a new king in your life, and and so your faith does not mark the end of that journey, but it marks the beginning. Where you, as a new creation in Christ, are being called to participate in the kingdom of God here and now. And this is something that we remember as we gather each week um, at the Lord's table, that, that we believe when Jesus was literally killed and was literally raised from the dead, that that was the break of the curse and that sin and death have been defeated. But this is also an invitation as we gather, we call it the Lord's Supper, as we gather at this table There's a picture as you're sitting around this table and taking these tangible symbols of bread and dipping it in the juice, that you're sitting around this table with God's people, and God's sitting there, and he's given us a game plan. And and he says, these are the things I care about. Because you believe in Jesus, you are my people, and I want you to be a part of this. So as you sit and, and reflect on who Jesus was to you, Maybe you don't believe that, that he was this king of the universe, that he was the God incarnate who died for your sins. And, and if you don't believe that, I'm really happy you're here. And just sit and take this time to reflect and think about some of these claims that Jesus made. But if you think about Jesus and you say, well, he did die for me and he is my Lord, um, think about the implications that, that has on your life with regards to how do you live and steward this creation? Um, how are you participating in the work that he's calling you to? Um, and think about even just getting involved in some of the opportunities um, that I mentioned with the Escape Club. Um, are there opportunities where you can take other people alongside of you and say, look at this world, it's good. A loving God made this, and a loving God loves you too.